And I'm back. Back. Oh, my God. For those of you that tuned in last week for the very first time, I thought, wow, is this guy on lewds or what? Um, I just, as you know, wasn't myself last week. I had that vertigo and everything, and I, I listened back to the podcast, and uh, it was just a little bit, it was laconic at best, at best. Uh, and I never get sick because I take heaps of supplements, work out, um, you know, like to stay fit, but whew, wow, I was not myself last week at all. However, however, I'm back. This is, in case you wondered, what am I listening to? This is the official Bobby Galinsky podcast, the way it is. It's your official Bobby Galinsky podcast. Uh, ready, willing, and able, tanned, rested, and ready. Still in lockdown. Still in lockdown here in picturesque Victoria. It used to be the world's most livable city. Now it's the world's most incarcerated city. And um, just in case you wanted to run the numbers, I ran the numbers. Wonder people say, what's happening in Australia? There's been 24,000 cases of the Wu flu here in Australia. We have 25 million population, so that equals 0.001 of the population that has a case of the Wu flu, a case. Now, you divide 500 deaths, which we've had by 25 million population as of this podcast, roughly, and you have 0.00002 of the population, 200,000 have died from coronavirus. Now, of the deaths, almost all are over 70, and they all have some kind of weak immune system or some comorbidity. Now, based on the above, our politicians are shutting down all human activity, all economic activity, and basically destroying businesses and jobs and incomes and their tax revenue base. So the cities and states and the entire nation is going to be a fiscal mess. So just please Tell me what I'm missing here about the reaction and overreaction, in my opinion. You just let me know. Let me know. Because that's all I'm going to talk about it. Because we've got so much to cover. First of all, I know you're feeling better just listening to me because 38% of Americans listen to podcasts to help improve their mood. According to new research from Deezer, the music and podcast streaming industry found that Americans are three times as likely to use podcasts to combat loneliness compared to some European countries. So lonely. So I know that a third of Americans that listen to this are better off than my other podcast friends around the world. But we've got lots of new friends, especially in Singapore, Brazil, and Canada. It's exploding in Canada. So welcome, everyone. Thank you very much for listening. You know that without you, this podcast goes nowhere. And make sure if you haven't subscribed, please subscribe at the way it is dot blueberry, and that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot net. The way it is dot B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot net. And when you go to the show notes and you'll see all the pictures and links and stuff like that, you can leave a comment if you want, which has to be approved by me, which is why 
you're only going to see great comments on here. It's kind of a little bit of a Goebbels, you know, mind control. But uh, that's my privilege. Now, today, what's going to happen? So much, so much goodness. We are going to, well, first of all, you know why there's so much goodness? And I hope you're writing it down because the sun is in Virgo. And as Mystic Medusa would tell you, that is magnificent. So chronicle this period, chronicle. Yep, all the crap going down in the news, but write your quirky diary and take in things. My wife and I just ordered a couple of really nice journals so that we journal everything that we're doing every day, just a little, couple little paragraphs. Now, it could be for your descendants, your future historians, or just a gem of a book deal in the future. You never know. Because Virgo, like Gemini, is Mercury-ruled, witty, and highly observant. Plus, it's just an opportunity to spend more money online while we're locked down. Now, today, what are we going to talk about? We're going to be talking about Attila's in New Jersey, which is fighting the U.S. government about lockdown. We're going to talk about the most amazing girl math prodigy. This chick solved like one of the most difficult a math equation. It's, it stumped experts for 50 years at Boston College. And uh, a young lady who was a grad student from Maine solved it in days. I love stories like that love inspirational science stories. Science, bitches. And uh, we're going to be talking about the worst person in the FBI that we know about right now, FBI lawyer Kevin Kleinsmith, who just pleaded guilty in uh, federal court to spying on the Trump campaign for uh, short or long there. We're going to be talking about TV, the block. The block started again, and the block is on our block so we absolutely love it. That's a uh, Aussie TV show for those of you overseas. Should be able to still stream it. The new Killers album. We're getting in some music here. We're expanding our horizons. Not just film, TV, and books. And adding a little bit on food to our food and fashion arena. So expanding our universe for you. And they're all things that I like. And that's why this podcast is called The Way It Is. It's the way it is for me. Now, it finally stopped raining here. By the way, this is episode 23, almost two dozen. Next week, two dozen. Very excited. And uh, yeah, 16 degrees here. Uh, Going to get up to 18 tomorrow and fully sunny. Might be able to, to grill out, which I did last week in defiance the Bayside Barbecue Band that is being proposed. Grilled some beautiful Scotch sirloin steaks. Oh, man, those were great. With a lot of butter, a little bit of rosemary on it, some thyme, and uh, chopped garlic, flames flames licking up like buildings in Beirut after an explosion, but tastier. And um, I wonder, today being August 28th, I wonder how August 28th has fared over time. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Nine, the Alita. Nine, the Alita. Died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. My firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Well, today in history, on August 28th, and thanks to the 
crack production team that uh, got together and said, you know, Bobby, we really need some fantastic intros, some unique intros to all the chapters. And uh, the team got together and came up with that. Thanks, team. Um, Well, let's go back to 476. 476. Well, Joe Biden remembers 476. That's that's when he started in Congress. German ruler Flavius Odecker captured Pavia. And Orestes, father of Emperor Romulus Augustulus, is captured and executed by Odecker and his followers. Wow, that's a bit heavy. In 1521, Belgrade was captured by the troops of Turkish Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent. I wonder if any relation to Natalie Suleiman, the Victoria Labor um, branch stacking uh, criminal culprits, you know, Adam Somnurek and stuff that's uh, well, had the big investigation on 60 Minutes. I don't know. Both Turks, hmm, same surname, five centuries apart. Yeah, I think that's where that branch stacking started. Now, 1837. Pharmacist John Lee and William Perrins, Lee and Perrins, you're so smart, manufactured Worcestershire sauce, which is a staple in my diet. In 1884, F.N. Robinson. Do you know who F.N. Robinson was? Well, a photographer of note. He took the first known photo of a tornado near Howard, South Dakota. And that photo was in the uh, show notes. Now, the reason you haven't heard much of F.N. Robinson after that is he died, got killed in a storm. So um, I think that's absolutely fantastic that he went out and left a beautiful photo behind. And um, South Dakota is known for tornadoes and Mount Rushmore. Now, 1917, Jack Kirby I know all you mega, mega, mega men out there know who that is, and you, uh, you know, absolute hero kids. American cartoonist who did X-Men, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, Hulk, and Captain America, Jack Kirby. It was his birthday, born in New York City. He died in 1994. That's the year I moved to Australia, by the way. 1930, birthday, Ben Gazzara, American actor, run for your life in QB7. Run for Your Life was such an amazing show. That was after my bedtime when I was growing up in Sioux City, but I'd stay up and watch it. He was born in New York also. A lot of great people born in New York. My mom was born in New York. 1946, on this day, film noir, The Killers, premieres. Now, there's a little bit of little bit of uh, serendipity there in coincidence, because we're going to talk about The Killers later, the band. The Killers premiere, directed by Robert Schildmack, starring Burt Lancaster. What a star. Ava Gardner. What a hottie. And based on a story by Ernest Hemingway, someone who obviously didn't know the front from the rear of a shotgun until it was too late. 1962. I was nine years old. And while I was nine... 55.9 centimeters of rain, that's about 23.62 inches, fell in one day at Hackbury, Louisiana. That's a state record. That's a lot of fucking rain, chubby rain. In 1962, also the same year, Dr. Giza D. Keplany tortured his wife with acid to punish her for supposed infidelity. I was trying to think of something really novel 
to segue off of that. And I've thought about it for about 10 minutes. But there's really nowhere you can go that's happy and ironic and, you know, satirical that's not going to offend someone going from um, acid torturing for infidelity. But I, I'm going to work on it. 1963, on this day, very famous, Martin Luther King delivers his I Have a Dream speech addressing the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom Civil Rights March at Lincoln Memorial, Washington, D.C. And it was just five years later, in 1968, that um, he took a room with a balcony. Never pay extra for the balcony. It never ends well. He should have had a dream about that one. Stay off the balconies. 1965, Bob Dylan booed, booed for playing electric guitar at a concert in New York's Forest Hills. All the fucking hippies that wanted an acoustic guitar, you know, absolutely lost their stuff. They, they had Dylan derangement syndrome. It's like Trump derangement syndrome. They went crazy. On this day in 1965, now... We've spoken to our lawyers, the crack legal team here at uh, The Way It Is, and we're going to tread this lightly. But the first Subway sandwich shop, the big franchise, opened in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Now, a couple things to know. Bridgeport, Connecticut is one of the ugliest cities in the United States. I've spent time there. Shocking. Second thing you need to know is, in my opinion, I allegedly think Subway is the worst food franchise out there. I find their food shocking. There's one in Brighton on Church Street. I don't know what it's doing there, but my mission is to get that off of... It's a blight on Church Street. The smell wafts blocks away, and um, it's, you know, the same smell that you get in a hospice when you walk in there. Now, all of that is opinion, of course. Our crack legal team has asked us to be very careful about that. 19 and if you eat at Subway, please, please cancel your subscription to this podcast or stop. Just stop. It's not a good look. And it's not healthy food. Now, 1973. Let's get it on. Yes. Let's get it on. You thought that was Marvin Gaye? It wasn't. It was actually me. Marvin Gaye's 13th studio album was released. On this day in 1981, John Hinckley, one of the first Tinder dates for Jody Foster, pled innocent to attempting to assassinate U.S. President Ronald Reagan at the presidential convention, who shot him on March 30th. Now, Nancy Pelosi probably... Probably loved that. Probably loved when Reagan got shot. We'll talk about that later. And still sticking on politics and ending with this on this day in 2012. You know, people think I bagged the Democratic Party. I have voted Democrat a few times in the U.S. I have. But the GOP, the Republicans, have made one of the most horrifically bad decisions since 476 when Mitt Romney was officially nominated as the U.S. Republican Party's candidate, which is generally my party, one of the worst human beings ever to be nominated for U.S. president. And, uh, you know, don't tread on that list lightly. 
absolute bottom of the barrel, embarrassed, was embarrassed as a Republican. And as a Republican, the Republican National Convention closed yesterday. And of course, the Democrats had their convention last week. And um, I'm probably going to do a bit of a concise wrap up on that. Might do it this week. It's kind of free form. Might do it next week. We'll see how we go. You just hate me stopping that. I know so many of you got on to listen today and thought, I wonder if he'll play Somewhere Over the Rainbow by Harold Arlen, but played on Samuel Hoffman's theremin. Well, be careful what you wish for, because it's science, bitches. You remember I forecast a little bit earlier that we were going to talk about an amazing science feat about a math problem that stumped experts for 50 years and a grad student from Maine, a female grad student, not something you automatically equate with super mathematicians like Stephen Hawking or, you know, something like that. But this article by John Wolfson in the Boston Globe is astonishing. Did you know half a century ago, a brilliant young mathematician named John Horton Conway discovered, of all things, a knot. This knot wasn't something you'd be likely to encounter in the real world. Not like a knot on a shoe or knots landing or, you know, something like that. But you could certainly create it out of string if you wanted to. But generally speaking, it existed only in Conway's calculations. I know all the mathematicians and physicists here are getting, like, sexually aroused. There were thousands upon thousands of these kinds of conceptual tangles great name for a rock band, in a bewildering corner of mathematics known as knot theory, K-N-O-T. But even there, Conway's discovery was special. Not so much for what it was, but for what it might or might not be. Yes, that's confusing, but when talking knot theory, it's best to accept that things are going to get a little fuzzy. Bear with me through this next section. In any case, the Conway knot is hardly remarkable at first glance, with only 11 crossings, or places where it overlaps itself, it's rather nondescript by the standards of higher dimensional knot theory. But the knot has one property that has made it the subject of intense mathematical scrutiny. Conway, who died a while ago at age 82, from complications of Wu flu, made innumerable contributions to the field of mathematics, yet... Yet, lo and behold, it was his knot that specialists would return to over again and over again. Decorated mathematicians were unable to find a solution to what became of the Conway knot problem. And that had to do whether proving or not, proving or not, whether the Conway knot was something called slice, an important concept in knot theory. Now, I'm going to put this in the show notes because it gets so technical here at and the article that it lost me, because I never took math after geometry. 
I didn't take algebra. I didn't take quark physics or quantum physics or, you know, the, uh, you know, express neuron-specific ramifications of nanotechnology or anything like that. But I am fascinated by math. But let's fast forward. Just two years ago, a little-known graduate student named Lisa Piccarillo, who grew up in Maine, wears dresses and does not have thick glasses, learned about the knot problem while attending a math conference. A speaker mentioned the Conway knot during a discussion about the challenges of studying knot theory. For example, the speaker said, we still don't know whether this 11-crossing knot is slice. That's ridiculous, Pecorillo thought while she listened. This is 2018. We should be able to study that and do that. A week later, she produced a proof that stunned the math world. Are you ready for this? Are you excited? This gets me excited. Because knot theory is a subspecialty of a field of mathematics known as topology, which is concerned with the study of spaces. Not safe spaces, for those of you that are concerned about that. But it's under, for understanding DNA and protein folding. So, Piccarillo told the author in May as they sat wearing masks and maintaining social distancing in an outdoor courtyard not far from where she lives in Harvard Square, that apparently these things are very long and they like to stick to themselves so they get all knotted up. So, anyway, this math chick, who was not one of those, you know, born to parents that are either Indian mathematicians or Beijing lawyers that have been, you know, in math camp since age four and, and look like Kim Jong-un's sister. But uh, this just looks like a normal red-blooded American girl. Uh, she went back and she's 29 now. She grew up in Greenwood, Maine, a town with less than 900 people. And she said she was a top student and her mom taught middle school math, but there was little interest to suggest that she would become a world-class mathematician. Anyway, she arrives on campus her first year in Boston College, Boston College in 2009, and she was as interested in theater and other subjects as she was math. How weird is that? And she had a strong, very strong sense of aesthetic, said James Ferry, a friend of Piccarillo's from the University of Texas who specializes in geometry and is a postdoc at Yale. At Piccarillo's level, math that people like is often thought of and talked about as beautiful or deep. The day after hearing, this one day after hearing about the Conway knot problem, Piccarillo, then 27, sat down at her desk and began looking for a solution, sharing 4D properties. And since her goal was to prove the Conway knot wasn't slice, her first step, of course, this is what I would have thought of, what's the first step? Well, come up with an entirely different knot with the same four-dimensional space. Then I'll try and show that the other knot isn't slice. It's what I would have done. And then the next steps to prove the knot she drew wasn't slice. Who knew? Just a slice of life. And then she submitted her solution to the Annals of Mathematics, the prestigious math journal, and they agreed to publish her paper. They agreed to publish her paper. When the author asked James Fair, the Yale postdoc, to explain the significance of having a paper published in the Annals, he laughed for a couple of seconds. It's head and shoulders the most important and influential journal in all of Math of Fucking Maddox. That's why I'm laughing. He didn't say Math of Fucking Maddox. I did.
It's amazing. It's so cool. Anyway, so now this chick is the math hotness. She is the, the bee's knees. She is the Stephen Hawking in a dress. And allowed to wear a dress, not um, from any other means. And as she says, you don't have to be really smart, whatever that means, to be a successful mathematician. There's this idea that mathematicians are geniuses. A lot of them seem to be child prodigies that do these Olympiads. But really, you don't have to come from that background at all to be very good at math. And most mathematicians, including the really good ones, don't come from that sort of background. And as Piccarillo herself proved, some of them even go on to produce work that alters the course of mathematics. Now, after all this, I have no idea what a Conway knot is. I still don't know what a slice is. Well, a slice is actually a popsicle that's made in Australia that's like lime and it's got like ice cream in it. Oh, that sounds fantastic right now. That sounds absolutely fantastic. But I just love it when people do amazing things like that. People do great achievements above and beyond human expectations. This is not the type of person that's going to get famous for being on Instagram or throwing a brick at a cop or trying to set a federal building on fire, which seems to be the only way you get famous these days. However, speaking of that lemon and lime splice... Yes, and welcome to Bobby's Great Brighton Bake Off. Well, that's as good a music as I could put in for that. Because a lot of you are thinking, I felt so bad last week. Why am I feeling so good this week? Because I made the most amazing passion fruit cream cheese cheesecake with gelatin. No bake, just chill. I'm always chilling. And this passion fruit cheesecake. I love cheesecakes. You know, I'm a sweets addict, but this cheesecake actually made me a better person. And that's what I've been nibbling at all week. Absolutely amazing. And what I've been drinking with it, because it's been a couple of cold rainy nights, it's been a kind of a combination of Irish coffee and Tuwaka Nutter coffees. Irish coffees, many of you may know, it might not be the first coffee drink with alcohol, but it's one of the most famous which combines coffee, very good coffee, as I am prone to have, with Irish whiskey, brown sugar, and lightly whipped cream. Irish coffee is a hot, creamy classic. Now, there's many tall tales about Irish coffee's origins. The most credible version attributes the cocktail to Joe Sheridan, the head chef of the restaurant at the Foyne's Flying Boat Terminal in County Limerick in the early 1940s. Legend has it that when he first served it, and was asked if it was Brazilian coffee. Sheridan cheekily replied that it was Irish coffee. The drink was later made famous by Staten de Plante, who worked at the Buena Vista Cafe in San Francisco during the 1950s, and de Plante wrote about the drink frequently in a travel column that was read widely across the States and piqued curiosity about Irish coffee. The Irish do have some good things, which of course is Irish whiskey, brown sugar, brewed coffee, hot with whipped cream. 
Now, I had that a couple nights, but the last two nights, I made something even more amazing. It's the Tawaka Nutter Coffee, which is Tawaka Citrus Liqueur, Frangelico Hazelnut Liqueur, Kahlua Coffee Liqueur, Cream, and Coffee mixed in a cocktail shaker with ice. You drink some of these and get in your car immediately and go out. Oh, it, you'll, it'll have an experience you never could imagine. It is. It goes down like candy. It goes down like, you know, ice cream sundae. But then a couple miles down your road, you're thinking, I shouldn't be driving a car. In fact, I don't even know what a car is. These things are potent. Enjoy responsibly, like me. Because I can't leave the house. And speaking of people that won't be leaving the house for a while, let's talk about Kevin Kleinsmith. Let's go to Washington, D.C. Kevin Kleinsmith is a former FBI lawyer who pleaded guilty last Wednesday to altering an email that one of his colleagues relied upon as he sought a court's blessing to surveil the Donald Trump campaign and a specific campaign advisor, Carter Page, during the Bureau's 2016 investigation of Russia's election interference. Now, this is not from MAGA Monthly. This isn't even from Fox News, which is a largely conservative network, as we all know, or you should know. This is from the fake news capital of all time. This is from Matt Zapatowski and Ann Marimo at the Washington Post. So if the Washington Post is reporting on something that's pro-Trump, you know they got forced into every possible retraction. Kevin Kleinsmith, who worked in the FBI general counsel's office starting in 2015, told a federal judge he thought at the time he was inserting truthful information, though later he conceded he doctored the message. Quote, at the time, I believe the information I was providing in the email was, was accurate, but I am agreeing the information I inserted was not originally there. So the judge said, you agree, you intentionally altered the email to include information, fake information, not originally in the email. The judge asked, yes, answered Kleinsmith. So, and what the mainstream media is trying to do is say that this was like a low-level FBI guy. He was assistant general counsel. He reported to the number one guy in his division. That guy reported to the president, President Obama at the time. So, it's the first of a whole string of things coming out from the Barr probe and the Durham probe about malfeasance during the Obama administration. And you know what? I absolutely love it. After they hamstrung the administration for years with that fake Mueller probe, the fake Russia probe, which, you know, they don't talk about that anymore since it's all been debunked. And uh, this, these are the things that, that do drive me a bit mental. When people push a fake narrative, an absolute fabrication for years and years and years and spend tens of millions of dollars of taxpayer money and destroy lives. And then when they're caught, they go, oh, fuck, yeah, we made it up. Sorry. This is just the beginning of the tidal wave. But what's even more exciting to me is that Kevin Kleinsmith, who pled guilty, and pled guilty because he would have given up the ghost on a couple of other folks so that he could get off light a plea deal. So I just can't wait to see what names will be popping up in the next several weeks and months from this investigation. I hope James Comey is one of them. I really do. That, that would make my Christmas or Hanukkah. 
because I'm sure that Kleinsmith has said a lot of things that are off the record. But what about things that are on the record? Speaking of on the record, this week I discovered one of the best records. Well, I still call them records. One of the best albums that I've probably, it'd be definitely already one of my favorite top 10 albums of the last 20 years. Because I really haven't heard that much epic music the past 20 years. Yeah, a lot of radio head, um, a lot of grooviness here and there, but nothing that's blown me away. But the new Killers album, which is called Imploding the Mirage, which just came out, is astonishing. If you're not familiar with the Killers, you probably are very familiar with their big 2004 hit, Mr. Brightside. Everybody knows Mr. Brightside. And um, I'm going to be quoting from Jim Oswald, who reviewed the album for Variety. But even in the era that has produced very few big rock bands, the Killers are an anomaly. They're one of the most commercially successful acts of the 21st century, but their music, a crafty mix of pop, heartland rock, and new wave, just doesn't seem to fit in any scene or genre. And of course, their biggest hit, as I shared, Mr. Brightside, goes back 16 years. They're the most popular band to come from Las Vegas, but they're often grouped with early 2000s New York City scene of the Strokes and Yeah Yeahs, and their album contains incongruous flashes of Duran Duran and Bruce Springsteen in relatively equal measure, alongside hooks so gigantic that there's an almost Weezer-ish sense of, quote, are they being serious or iconic or both, end quote. I just love that. Well done, Dash. In the pop landscape, the Killers are both an outlier and overwhelmingly normal. The band's secret weapon is its mixture of pop hooks and heartstring-tugging anthems, mostly down to frontman Brandon Flowers, who, despite the group's success, is still one of the most underrated singers and songwriters working today. He's a Mormon, he's a family guy, he was born and reared in Vegas, which is an absolute anomaly. And uh, he's savvy, very savvy, enough to know the line between familiarity and evolution is a fine one. And each subsequent Killers album has managed to navigate change while still evolving, but yet hewing to the group's basic template. However, on Mirage, many of the familiar elements are present, from Flowers' soaring tenor and rousing triumphant choruses to the crystalline keyboards and surprisingly frequent glockenspiel that underpins them. This album absolutely knocks me off. The songs are vintage killers. They often begin really quietly and then drive inoxorably to those yearning multi-layered choruses that Flowers does so well. This is music you can sing in the car. This is music that you'll be singing around your house or your apartment. And every single track is amazing. Beautiful, stunning track with Katie Lang singing along too. Absolutely fantastic. And uh, The Big Bang is saved for the penultimate track, When the Dreams Run Dry, which features a stunning coda that is one of the best things Flowers has ever written. And he seems to know it, too, judging by the elaborate, even by Killer Standard's arrangement around the cascading melody. It's epic. This, I hate to overrate something, and people go, oh, that's not so good. But literally, you know, I grew up... Music in the 60s and 70s and 80s, the 
apex of rock music. And I love Springsteen. I love Led Zeppelin. And I love The Who. And, you know, all the major bands. And then music just kind of went on. And then, and then downloading came in. And it was only, you know, nine-year-old boys and 14-year-old girls listening to absolute rubbish because I could download it. So that when, you know, someone gets a million downloads these days, it's not the same as selling a million albums. I'm sorry, no, it's not. But I'm very open. I love all genres. I love Taylor Swift's music. I love Justin Bieber. I like Drake. I'll listen to everything. But this album has taken me back to being at university and going up to the record store. I used to work at a record store. I used to manage a budget tapes and record store on the hill in Boulder where I never had a paycheck because I spent more on music there than I ever made. And uh, But buying the album, taking off the shrink wrap, going home, looking at all the great notes that are inside, putting it on the record player, and, the and then those first notes that come out of your stereo. That's the feeling that I got from this album. I absolutely hope you love it. If not, too bad you spent money. You trusted me. You fucked up. Enjoy. You you won't be disappointed. Interesting thought recalling my job at uh, Budget Tapes and Records, never getting a paycheck. Um, my first job ever when I was 14 after school, I worked at a place called Sportsman's Camera, 413 Nebraska Street, Sioux City, Iowa. Never forget it. And I don't think I ever got a paycheck there because I always bought more camera equipment and stuff than uh, I ever got a paycheck. It was uh, negative financing. I worked from notes. And, um, and of course, when there's interviews, I've got uh, questions for the interviewee. And, uh, but sometimes I just don't like the vibe of the notes, the way, the way things are going. I was going to spend a lot of time on the Republican and Democratic national conventions, but I really want to let it sit on me for a week. The Democrats was last week, and the Republicans suspended yesterday. And the, the tone of both is so similar yet so dissimilar. The one, the one problem that I will touch on today to have you think about is Joe Biden says he's running on character. This guy is anything as far from a good guy as can be. He tries for that grandfatherly image, but um, he's so creepy and the way he fondles women from age, you know, young kids to anyone he meets and is, is, is so creepy. Now, let's get to the president. Um, I don't like a lot of the character of President Trump either. He does a lot of things I absolutely don't like. So you can't judge this election on character. You can say, I don't like either of these guys. Neither of them are mannered or gruff or um, their attitude towards women or, or whatever like that. So let's throw character out the window and just look at the, let's just look at the messages, the evocative feelings of euphoria that each of the candidates wants to purvey so that when you go to your polling booth or, or vote my mail, don't do that if you're in the U.S. Do not do that. Do not vote by mail. That um, you get the result that you want. I, I, I think the thing that absolutely just baffles me is you look at the guests that were in the Democratic National Convention and all they wanted to do is demean and destroy. And you look at the guests that were on the Republican side, um, football players, black football player, Herschel Walker, that had known Trump 
for 37 years as a friend decrying the fact that he's he's called a racist. Families that have been attacked in their homes that just want more law and order. Um, I guess, you know what? It gets down to people that I grew up with, normal people just wanting a normal life or an exemplary life, but protection, being able to walk safe down the street, being able to keep the money they saved, being able to know that their taxes are hopefully getting some benefit. You can spend your money better than the government. I don't care whether it's the Republicans or the Democrats. They're going to just waste our money, your money, um, because the government can never make as good a decision as you. But the government has to be there for defense and some type of medical operation or Medicare where available and um, an army and, you know, the National Guard and police and everything like that down to your local level. But um, I just don't see any of the values of normal, aspirational, good, faithful, honorable people coming from the left side. I, I just can't be sympathetic. And it's not that I love the president or I love the GOP. I have predominantly been a conservative voter. It's just I don't see any of the values that my parents instilled in me that I, I grew up with on coming from the, the left. It's all Karl Marx, socialism and communism just wrapped up in a, in a brand new package of control. Now, I could be missing something. I could be completely deluded. I could be, but I think not. And uh, I'm going to dissect the conventions next week, but I think it's going to be a very, very sizable win for President Trump in November. I, I think closeness went out the window when Joe Biden said on TV that uh, he would shut down the whole country, full stop, to try and stop the virus, the Wu flu. Shut down the whole country, full stop. Think about that one. Think about it. Anyway, just had to, just had to ponder that. Had to ponder that. A couple other wondrous things that I did want to talk about, of course, uh, this week is building things, building a universe, or just building a home. The block. Channel 9's TV series, The Block, which is actually shooting down the road from us on our street. And uh, if you're from overseas, it is a kind of do-it-yourselfer show brought onto an absolute universal epic grand scale where they get five couples and they're competing to renovate homes or turn a hotel into a series of townhomes or turn, you know, it's, it's been quite a few number of years and there's a lot of different projects, but the last three or four years has been in Melbourne and rather large grand scale projects. Now, they brought in five vintage homes from 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, but they all have a kind of a similar facade that is quite synchronous with each other. And they drop these on a big empty block in Brighton that have been sitting there trying to sell apartments for a number of years unsuccessfully be interesting to see who bought those off the plan hope they got their money back because there was no plan that came to fruition but anyway one man's dessert is another man's trash and the opportunity has risen and the block has taken over in brighton so you've got five new homes 
uh, five empty shelves of these old homes. And what they're doing is refitting them, fixing them up, and putting on massive, massive additions to the back of the house that are all modern and uh, smick and all of that with like, you know, pools and media rooms. And uh, they're going to be, I think, probably four, maybe even five bedroom houses. I'm not sure. At least three bedroom houses. They're going to be massive. They're going to be three and a half to four and a half million dollar homes. They hope. And uh, the couples all come from different backgrounds. You got farmers and you got tradesmen and you've got IT people. And, you know, you got a father daughter. That's pretty cool this year. You've, uh, you've had brothers, you've had um, same-sex partners in the past. They mix everything up to try and get as many viewers as possible. But they start as friends, but towards the end, after a couple months, they're not quite so friendly as the competition gets towards the pointy end. And you've got the guy that's the master builder, Scotty Cam, that's the, the moderator and the host. He's absolutely fantastic. He just looks like the everyman that you'd relate to. And, um, you know, you've got the villain, you've got the, uh, you know, building supervisor, the Keithinator, who's really not a villain, but he, you know, gets cast as the villain because he's the one making sure that everybody builds stuff up the code. But anyway, for those of you that like to watch DIY shows and travel shows and building shows and even more posh shows like Grand Design, um, Grand Design, by the way, um, is one of our favorite shows the English version, but I must admit that the Skippy version, the Aussie version of Grand Designs, has done a very good job, and it's because the host and the whole format is very, very, very similar and posh, like the English one, as opposed to Top Gear, which was made into a Skippy TV show here. Uh, for those of you overseas, it's kind of a... Um, a uh, wouldn't say an insult, but uh, a little bit of a uh, tack attack word onto Australian. I'm very proud to be an Australian and love some of our local productions here. But Top Gear Australia was everything that was most cringeworthy about Australia, from host to ghost. Anyway, how did I get distracted there? But the block, just like MasterChef here, is world-class television. You can't get much better in production, everything. And it's so riveting because you start barricading or rooting for some of the couples, and then you kind of get tied into some of the homes and think, oh, geez, I like that house. I'd, I'd like to buy that house, or I'd like to do my room like that one or whatever. And you get so many cool ideas, and you see normal people trying to build a house. And if you've ever thought of building a house with your partner, wife, sister, father, daughter, grandson, whatever, this will either convince you to do it for sure or, in my case, convince me that this could never be done whatsoever. Maybe if I was 20 years younger, um, with a lot of vodka, um, I could take on something like this. But uh, it looks hard. I, I really respect people. I can do DIY stuff and do all of that. Anyway, the show is just in its third night. And uh, the judges are great, too. you got people that come in and judge the rooms from uh, design worlds and, you know, um, varied. You've got, uh, my favorite is, is Neil Whitaker. He's a bit of a design expert, and he wears Jacques-Marie Maj glasses like I do. So he has impeccable taste. But they're all good. So tune in, and if you're overseas, I'm sure you can get a VPN and stream it somehow, somewhere. Sometime, someday.
Now, I'm just kind of going down memory lane here. I was opening up an envelope of things, kind of cleaning out my office, and um, an old photo from Rivercade came up. Now, Rivercade, if you grew up in Sioux City, Iowa, like me, was a big, big event for a couple of days every summer, um, I think July or August. And um, I just realized now we're towards the end of September, and um, I had to look it up. I think Rivercade was canceled because of um, Wu flu this year. I'll have to delve more into that. But it was a festival on the river, Sioux City being in the tri-state area on the Missouri River. And uh, big, big, big event. Parades and, you know, carnival rides and lots of food and music and things. And I don't even know how it's evolved since the late 60s when... Uh, I was going to school there. In fact, after I left in 1971, really no no idea. Though I came back briefly in the 80s. But it just kind of brought back some nice memories. The old photo just kind of popped out like that. And uh, my mom never was really fond of Rivercade because she felt there was an element there, an element that might not be good for me. And I think that was the uh, carnival ride operators, the carnies. One... They uh, usually had South Dakota or Nebraska license plates on their cars. And two, they had tattoos. And those were, those were warning signs for, uh, for kids in the uh, late 50s and 60s. Stay away from strange people from those states. You know, they're usually from, you know, like, you know, West Bug Tussle, South Dakota, or... Um, you know, Winklevoss, Nebraska, or some, you know, well, West Baby Jesus, Montana, they might have come down for it. You just had to uh, had to be aware. So I don't know. Uh, I wonder what River Cade is like these days. I'm sure some of our Sioux City friends will post that up on social media, and we will, we will be caught up. We will be caught up. Um, one thing I'd like to shout out is... Um, Oh my god, it's that time. Oh my god, got a little bit late here. So, you finally arrived. What the hell are you wearing? It's my ass-kicking outfit, bitch! How does the time fly? It is my ass-kicking outfit. And today, we're going back to Bloity. And boy, do I feel tough today. You could tell in my voice when I started the podcast, I feel tough today. Because I am sitting here in my bell staff sweatshirt now if you're a motorcycle person you know that bell staff is the hot clobber from britain's oldest manufacturer in fact the company bell staff started way back in 1924 by eli belovich and his son-in-law harry grossberg in longton stoke-on-trent staffordshire the name bell staff is actually a combination of eli's surname in his Staffordshire home. Bellstaff was the first company to use wax cotton in the manufacturing of waterproof apparel for motorcycling. And a little bit more about Bellstaff. The company was actually affected by the textile crisis in the 1990s, which precipitated the closure of their factory. But James Halstead continued to sell the brand selling Bellstaff motorcycle range, along with their helmet brands, till 2004. And that's when things really changed, because that's when they promoted the fashion side across Europe, 
Australia and USA. They just used to be known as motorcycle stuff. And in 2004, Franco Melanotti of Sponsor SA Italy bought the company. And Kate Moss was paid a million pounds to appear in super sexy hot Bellstaff ads. And that's when it all changed for them. In 2011, they added Martin Cooper as chief creative officer and planned to reposition Bellstaff as an English heritage brand centered on luxury sportswear. And Tommy Hilfiger was brought in as a business consultant. In 2012, they opened stores in Villa della Spiga, Milan, in New Bond Street, London, and Madison Avenue, New York City. The interiors were designed by legendary designer Bill Sofield. And in 2014, along with Jimmy Choo and Bally, Bellstaff was fully integrated into its parent group, JAB Luxury. They made the hottest 17-minute commercial with Legs Media in 2015 with David Beckham, Harvey Keitel, Catherine Waterston, and Kathy Moriarty. And in early 2016, Bellstaff made a three-minute commercial, Falling Up, in which Liv Tyler retraces the footsteps of 1920s aviator Amelia Earhart. This company is the hotness, an old English company, almost 100 years old, uh, and now it's the Hollywood hotness. But what makes it even more important is I'm wearing a white-on-white sweatshirt that I bought online. And normally I don't buy clothing online because... I'm always worried about the fit and having to return it. But all the stores in the UK and the US now, you know, make it so easy to return stuff that I actually ventured down luxury lane the last couple of weeks while in lockdown. I mean, we've bought everything else, as, as, as you know, um, umbrellas for our drinks, little paper umbrellas for our drinks, crockery, stuffed, you know, bears, plush cats. Um, journals to write in about the the lockdown. So why not some clothes? And uh, this came and tried it on and fits perfect. Picture in the show notes. I know I'm feeling a bit narcissistic this morning. Oh, this morning. Yes, I know. Sorry. What else can I do? What else can I do? When you're fat as a kid and can now fit into nice clothes, you still think you're the fat kid. So check that out. So I think we're just about to um, call it a day and call it a week here. Bit of a shout out to uh, Attila's Gym in New Jersey, and there'll be a link on the show notes there. They're a, a gymnasium that is uh, fighting the fight against lockdown. They actually had like a center of disease control expert come in and completely check out their gym like 862 times to the fourth power more than any sanitation department ever would and got like a certificate from them and only let members in and, you know, um, social distance and check temperature and check for certificates for COVID tests and stuff like that. And the New Jersey government still shut them shut them down. And they've challenged it in court. And they've been spending zillions of dollars. They've got a GoFundMe campaign they're pushing there. And I just respect that they're fighting for the rights and trying to do the right thing because their place would be safer than any other place in New Jersey. And uh, I think you're going to see a lot of things like this happening the next couple weeks. Um, We've still got three weeks left here. And the you've done a great job being a despicable, horrible person goes to Nancy Pelosi this week for calling the entire Republican Party an enemy of the state. I would love to say a lot of things, but this being a family show, I'm not going to say them. But I'm thinking them. 
And because we always want to end on a bright note, a big shout out this week to my friend Prachis Renaudin at Kuyong Lawn Tennis Center, who is the maître de la cuisine of the club and um, his wonderful food service and presentation and everything is missed and it's only a couple weeks till hopefully the club reopens and uh, he's a fan of the podcast and I'm a fan of Patrice and his equally astonishing staff and uh, keeping up with the Italian that's cruising away and so on that note preferisco vivere in piede più tosco che morire in I'd rather live on my feet than die on my knees. And you can make your choices for the next week until we meet again. So, vaya con Dios. Have a great life. Have a super week. Aloha. A Wiedersehen. Adios. Hasta luego. And uh, I'm just excited. I'm excited now. I'm not... Uh, not just about to pass out from tiredness like last week. I, I could keep going, but I'm not. I'm going to let you go. We'll see you next week, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe. Check out the show notes. And tell a friend if you have one. Later.